So, during worship, these two verses came to mind. And it's Jesus speaking in the book of Revelations. He says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Sometimes there's this weird idea that somehow Satan has the keys to death and Hades, and he calls it home. It's his office. He's like the CEO there. I don't know where that nonsense came from. It did not come from the scriptures. <laughs> Never been there. But the one we serve has the keys to death and Hades. And I'm pretty sure it's not so he can lock the door. I think it's so he can unlock the door. Because he is the victorious one. And his victory is over all. So this morning, fear not. And if you have one of those stupid tracks that tells the story of somehow, chick yeah, chick flicks, or, no, not chick flicks, <laughs> chick, <laughs> chick tracks. If, if, you ha if you have those, tonight would be a great night for a bonfire, and I would suggest that you could introduce them to the fire that they think they know about. So anyway, anyway, wow, it's going to be a great morning, and then uh, we're going to be back again tonight at 6.30. Jamie's going to be with us again this evening, so please uh, come back out and jump in with us this evening. This evening will be more Jamie-focused. This morning, we kind of, you know, we got all the other house stuff that we do, um, but he'll, we'll be back at 6.30 tonight, so looking forward to that. Um, I'm still on my first cup of coffee. So this morning we and this evening, we have a treat. Uh, Jamie was with us uh, some months back, and that was awesome the first time he was here. And when it worked out for him to be back, I'm just really stoked about having him with us this morning. Um, and just so you know, he getting from where he was to here has almost been an all-night affair thanks to the airlines. So... Um, flight delays and all that kind of stuff. So he got into Baltimore what, at, one, one? at one this morning to find a hotel and then to grab a rental car and get over here to be over here in time for church this morning. So if I'm only running on one cup of coffee, I'm not sure what Jamie's running on, but it'll be Holy Ghost power. So So let's give a house welcome to Jamie. Thank you, Pastor. Good morning, everyone. It is good to be back with you. I was, thank you. 
I think it was right about last year, close to this time, and just on a Wednesday. So a lot of you I didn't get to meet, but had a great time uh, when I was here with you. And uh, Pastor Robert and I, we finally got to really connect in person. I think we had did a couple video sessions, or we tried. We tried to do, I think, like two or three in a row. And uh, I think between hurricanes and everything else, stuff just didn't work. But it was great to finally spend some time together, and it's always great to find people that have similar DNA and the same type of heart. That's that's all I look for in this season of my life. I turned uh, 55 this year. My wife and I just celebrated our 32nd year of marriage and ministry. Amen. Thank you. I have uh, two amazing kids and two amazing uh, in-loves. Uh, I don't call them in-laws because they're not in-law. They're, they're in love. And uh, two of the most beautiful little granddaughters on the planet. And they are the great joy of my life. And that actually uh, leads me to, I have a whole pile of books back there I brought in my suitcase. And I'd prefer to not go home with these because I need room in the suitcase for toys that I need to bring them. Because they get excited every time I go on a trip. They love having Papa around. But, of course, they love the idea. They know that when I go on a trip, they like to go to the airport and drop me off because they like to see the airplanes. They come the airplanes. And they want to see them. And then they jump up and down saying, Papa's going to bring us a toy, toy, toy. And so I bring them something back. I can't help it because uh, there's no good thing will I withhold from them. Because yeah, I'm, I'm a lot like my heavenly father, and so I, I spoil them rotten. There ain't no doubt about it. My daughter says to me all the time, she said, Dad, you're so different uh, with, the, with the grandkids than you were with my brother. And I said, well, yeah, you and your brother raised me already. I said, we, we, we think we're raising our kids, let's be honest. Most of the time, they're raising us. That's why they always say grandparents are better parents. It's because we already messed up with you. <laughs> and, and we finally grew up a little bit and matured. And now by the time the grandkids come along, I mean, stuff that used to drive me crazy with my kids. I mean, grandkids spill stuff. I'm like, ah, they're kids. They spill stuff. Relax. It's not that big of a deal. I would lose my mind in my 20s. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's amazing <laughs> you know, uh, how much we grow and mature through life. But uh, anyway, I, I wrote a book a few years ago called Myths and Mistranslations. I'm working on uh, right now. Uh, it's all kind of being written down, edited. Uh, it's going to be coming back to me. It probably, probably won't be till the spring, uh, but called a more complete gospel. That's a little bit of what we talked about in, uh, in the videos that we did on hitting that the gospel is so much bigger than getting out of one place and going into another place. Cause Paul in Romans chapter one, he said, I long to come to you that I might preach the gospel to you, but he's talking to Christians and he's longing to come preach the gospel to Christians who, by the way, have already heard the gospel. So that lets me know the gospel is something bigger than just getting saved. All right, the gospel is, is, is much larger. Matter of fact, there's seven things called the gospel in the New Testament. The gospel of God, the gospel of the dear son, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of Paul, the gospel of, of God, the gospel of grace, and the gospel of the kingdom. All of them are the gospel. There's one gospel, but it is seven dimensions. And it's much bigger. I've, 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 for years now, I've watched people put on, on social media, they'll say things like this. If you went to church this past Sunday and you left the building thinking more about what you need to do when you left the building than what Jesus did for you, then you didn't hear the gospel that Sunday. And I would say yes and no. You might not have heard the gospel of grace that Sunday, but you might have heard the gospel of the kingdom. Because there is responsibility still in the kingdom. Because how many know if your pastor is going to teach about husbands loving your wife as Christ loved the church, you're probably not going to leave the building thinking about what Jesus did for you. Hopefully you're going to leave the building, gentlemen, thinking, I need to buy some flowers this week. 
You know, I mean, so practical, I need to be better at my wife's love language. There's practical things because the gospel, the good news, and what I found is most denominations, movements, whatever language you want to put to it, uh, most of them are really good at about three, maybe four, and then there's three they're completely deficient on, and so there's whole parts of the gospel they're completely deficient on. I mean, I was raised classical Pentecostal, and we understood the gospel of God. We knew God was sovereign. He was king. He was master. He was Lord. We understood the gospel of Christ. That's a part of the Holy Spirit working in the believer. We had the Holy Ghost stuff down pat, but we didn't understand the gospel of grace at all. I mean, grace was just to get saved. After that, it was all about your sweat, your labor, and your striving, and your struggling to try to stay saved so you could and finally hopefully get into heaven, even though you're already there and you're already a citizen. <laughs> I mean, if you're already seated in the heavenly Christ, why are you struggling to try to get someplace you already is for crying out loud? I mean, if most of the churches start acting like we're already there rather than struggling to get there, somebody that's here might want to actually be there because we're actually showing there while we're here. Amen. Don't ask me to repeat that. But then I, then I go to a lot of grace churches, and I ask them, what is the gospel? They'll say, it's the gospel of grace. And I'll say, and? And they'll no, that's it. It's just the gospel of grace. And I'm like, so folks uh, understand the gospel of grace. Many of them don't understand the gospel of Christ, because a lot of times there's no flowing of the gifts of the Spirit or anything else in a lot of those movements. And then normally they don't understand the gospel of peace, because normally the folks that stepped out of law and they stopped being legalists, then they became gracists. And now they're just fighting the legalists, and it's the same spirit that they're fighting because they don't understand what the gospel of peace is, and hardly any of them understand the gospel of the kingdom because they think the kingdom is three miles south of Mars on the way here through the Hubble telescope, and it's someday over there yonder, and they have no revelation of the kingdom of God within them. So, yes, understand, the good news is so much bigger. Come on, are you with me? It's, and so anyway, that, that's going to be hopefully by me. The next time I get with you, I'll have that. But in the meantime, I have this. This for me was 50 years of questions because I was always one of those kids that drove my parents nuts. I was always why. And of course the generation I was raised in, our parents just told us because they said so. But how many of you know in the, the information age and you now have the internet, that don't work because they don't even ask you no more. They just go look it up. Matter of fact, I'm not even sure they even care what we think anymore. And sometimes you got to be careful what you're looking up because then you can be getting some misinformation too. But uh, this for me was that I then went to Bible school and I do have a, a few degrees that I, I don't talk about a whole lot because I had to unlearn everything when I got out in ministry anyway. It really didn't impress me that much. Uh, but uh, every time a professor would say something, I'd be the guy in the second row going, hey, uh, that don't make no sense to me. You're going to have to help me a little bit better. And so I've always had just a lot of questions. And I didn't write this book to give people answers. Uh, I wrote this book to hopefully, uh, as my friend Bill Vanderbush says all the time, <laughs> it's funny how many times we say the same stuff without ever knowing each other two a few years ago, uh, but uh, about hopefully it'll cause you to ask better questions. Uh, hopefully it'll, it'll cause you to ask the right questions. I, I was rebuked by a, a major leader of a major charismatic Bible school publicly one time. He said, you need to stop ministering questions and you need to just minister the word. And I took it to heart. And about a week later, I, I texted him back and I said, you know, I appreciate, you know, what you said when I was here and we were in this meeting together. I said, but the word, when he showed up on the planet, he was asked over 800 questions. He answered eight it was like between eight and I think 12 questions he actually answered and he asked an additional 300 and some questions. So I'm going to follow the word. And so I'm going to minister the word because the word ministered questions. 
because that's how you grow and it's how you learn. And so I had a little bit of everything in here from the, the, the mythical age of accountability to the idea uh, that hell is the devil and demons headquarters. The, the, the fact is, you know, Satan is not even the general of demons. Uh, according to Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus destroyed him where the power of death that is the devil. Uh, the, the devil's an entity we just need to stop freaking out about. Uh, now, now, demons are still around. Because demons are passed down through familiar family spirits. Those are through mindsets and everything else. They weren't destroyed. Jesus dealt with principalities and powers. And by the way, those weren't demons. And I hit that in the book. Simply because Corinthians says that if the principalities and powers had known who Jesus was, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord. That's not talking about demons. Because demons knew exactly who Jesus was. Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. Who are you? Have you come to torment us before our time? That the principalities and powers that crucified the Lord was the, 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 the governmental authority, which was Pilate. It was the religious authority, which was, uh, which was Gamaliel. And it was the, 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 the economic one, which was Herod. All right, the principalities and powers that crucify the Lord. It's not talking about demon powers, okay? And so anyway, I break all that down because uh, those are myths too because I sat in whole Saturday seminars and we went over general demons and colonel demons and, and sergeant demons and Lord have mercy. Uh, just wore me all out thinking they're, they're this army and then the, then the devil is the general and their headquarters is hell. Truth is they've never been to hell. Uh, I mean, the, 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 he's a prince of the power. He was a prince of the power. The air goes about on the earth seeking who he may devour. Listen, all, all of this stuff and Jesus has the keys. And matter of fact, the last myth I put in the book is uh, that God doesn't send anybody to hell. They send themselves. That's something we just like to say uh, just simply because hell is so horrifying to us. We can't imagine a loving God doing it. So we, we try to get God out of it by saying, God doesn't send anybody there, but how do you send yourself somewhere you have no keys to? <laughs> listen, the, the, the truth is nobody sends themselves to hell. It's, it's, listen, that's just a dumb statement. You can't send yourself someplace you have no keys to. If anybody is sending anybody to hell, it would have to be Jesus because he's the only one that has the keys. Or maybe he locked the door, emptied hell out, and no one's been there in 2,000 years. But uh, anyway, that's... Uh, that's a, whole nother, that's a whole nother discussion on top of it because hell is a horrible translation anyway. It's actually the grave. Hades is the grave. He defeated the grave once and for all. No one's been to the grave in 2,000 years, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Good, bad, or ugly, just or unjust, you stand before God the moment you breathe your last breath. Now, what happens after that? That's between Jesus, who is the only judge, and I, I'm just going to trust that he's going to judge rightly. Uh, I'm just glad I'm not the judge. I'm glad he is. Hmm. So anyway, if, if you've been a person where any of that interests you, or if some of it just ticked you off, that's probably a good thing too, because uh, I found it a long time ago, truth makes you mad before it makes you free. And a lot of times what angers us is how come no one ever told me this, because I've been, I've been sitting in church for 20 years. Anyway, all that kind of stuff. So check that out. I got a bunch of them back there. I also have back there, there's four USBs. And between the four of them, there's almost 62 hours of teaching on about every kind of subject you can imagine. I'll talk maybe a little bit more about those tonight. Uh, I'm not doing any more of like audio stuff anymore because I'm, I'm focusing all now on uh, video e-courses I have on my website also. And I forget to mention, I do have an audio book of this on my website and it's actually like half price right now. And it's uh, audio book with commentary. So if you're a person that drives a lot and you listen more than you have time to sit and read, Go to the website and get that. I also have four, uh, four five to six hour e-courses, one on the gospel, one on how to understand the Bible, uh, one on eschatology in the last days, and then one called What the Hell. 
And uh, it's if you're interested, if you're interested at all about what the Bible actually teaches about that subject, I just go over what orthodoxy has taught for the last two thousand years. I go over the three major views, and get to the end and say, you know what, you have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. I'm not going. I'm not here to indoctrinate you. I'm just here to give you all the information, and you have the Holy Spirit that leads you into truth, and you you listen to what the Holy Spirit says. Because how I many you know every one of those views, including eschatology, none of them are are certainties. They're just all possibilities. Because when it comes to the afterlife, none of us know. All we do know is we that have received his love, according to 1 John, have no fear to stand before God on judgment day. Woo, I don't know about you, but that's good news right there. All I know is I got nothing to be scared of. Hallelujah. Just nothing to be afraid of. So anyway, take your Bible. Stir with me to John 13. Let me get to my assignment. Encourage you to be back tonight. Uh, tonight I'll have a little more time to do some personal ministry. And we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll prophesy. Have some fun. Uh, Greet you up. We'll see. John 13, starting in verse 33. Very familiar passage. We're going to get some fresh light. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer, and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, let me stop there just a minute. Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples who are Jews. And so he's telling Jews, as I said to the Jews. It's kind of a strange little thing right there. I'm going to get there in just a second. But a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. For by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, I, I, I have been, uh, I'm, I'm third generation preacher on one side of my family, second generation on the other, born, born and raised in and around the church, been traveling now for 32 years full-time, preaching a minimum, even during COVID, I preached almost 200 times. And uh, the one thing I found is I used to think that spiritual maturity was about understanding theology more. I used to think maturity was about if I could wow people by deep revelation. That if, if I, how many scriptures I could memorize, how much stuff I could understand. And then the older that I've continued to get, I've realized that real spiritual maturity is about walking this message out in love, in community with one another. Because where the rubber meets the road is not about, I think it's interesting that Jesus says, how the world will know that we are his is not by our church attendance. He didn't say the world will know that we are his by how many people we pray for and they fall on the floor and we pray for them, how accurate our prophetic words are, how many people we pray for that are sick, that get healed, and all those are good things. He didn't say anything about tithes and offerings. He didn't say anything about your prayer life and how, how long you pray in the spirit every day and that you're a prayer warrior. He said there's only one litmus test that actually proves that we are actually one of his, and it is loving humans. You see, I think there's a reason why much of the church prefers Moses over Jesus. Uh, let's be honest. A lot of folks prefer Moses over Jesus. The, the evangelical fundamental world, I just, I just read an article back here in the last couple months that they did a poll, and they found that in the evangelical fundamental world in America, more than 70% of believers think that Jesus' message of enemy love, turning the other cheek, and nonviolence is immoral. <laughs> immoral. 
Why? Because most of the church world, rather than being actual Christians, we just have a rehashed Phariseeism. The word Pharisee actually means separatist. Anytime you have a mentality of us and them or us versus them, you just became a modern day Pharisee. Anytime we have a mindset of those people and us people, it automatically is shifted, not from true Christianity, but from something different. I remember I was sitting with a friend of mine about 12 years ago who's a true theologian. I mean, teaches at Oxford, brilliant man. And he looked at me across the table. He was smoking a cigar. He was, you know, like, like one of those type theologians, you know. <laughs> no, it was a pipe. I'm sorry, he had his pipe. And he looked across the table at me. He said, Jamie, he said, you probably won't like this, and you probably won't even believe it right now. He said, but most of the Western world, Catholic and Protestant, are not Christians. They're Augustinians, and they don't even know it. He said they're, they're preaching and teaching a message taught by Augustine on that the early church didn't teach that doesn't even resemble the message of Jesus at all. And I said, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. And 12 years later now, I say, I concur. Especially when you realize that in the early 500s, there was a emperor by the name of Justinian, and Justinian shut down the other five schools of theology. There were six of them in the early church. He shut down the other five, and he said only Augustinianism should be taught because Augustinianism taught total depravity. Augustinianism taught, uh, uh, taught original sin, and Augustinianism taught punishment in the afterlife. And he said the gospel must be preached with punishment to keep the masses in check. Literally within a month, the Dark Ages started. Literally, history teaches us this. It literally shifted the whole church compared to what they preached the first 400 years compared to from then on. And a lot of what we have done also in America, as I'm convinced, we produce more Biblians than we have Christians because there's people that want to be biblical but not Christ-like. I'm going to talk about that a little bit tonight. I get, I get nervous anytime someone says, we need to get back to being biblical. I'm always like, which part? <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but that dashing Babylonian baby's heads on rocks and, and, the, and that tithing virgins in Deuteronomy, that one always freaked me out. I mean, the priesthood, they tithe virgins to them, and I'm like, I'm not sure what to do with them. I don't know about you, but I'm glad no one's ever tithed the virgin to me because I'm not really sure. I would have known what to do in that instance. I mean, I'd be like freaked out a little bit by that. I mean, there's, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to stop eating shrimp for nobody. I'm just telling you, I, I, I'm over here. Maybe for lunch, we'll grab some because I remember there's some good seafood over here in Jesus' name. Just there's a lot of stuff that's biblical. I mean, let's be honest, in post COVID world, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible we pick and choose. We don't greet each other with holy kisses. We don't walk up and say, <laughs> we just ain't doing that no more, okay? Just, it's like, hey, you know, fist bump, you know. Matter of fact, do you know that the Romans, the Romans actually had no issue with the people of the way in like the first 30 years of the church because the Romans actually thought the people of the way that later became known in Antioch as Christians was a sex cult because of how much they loved each other. They were hugging each other all the time. They greeted each other with kisses, and they just thought, well, you ain't got to worry about them folks, man. Them folks are just a bunch of hippies. You know, I mean, just you ain't got to worry about them fighting you. <laughs> you still got to worry about them folks, man. They just uh, just love, love, love. All we need is love. Man, that, that, that's, all they, that's all them folks were. <laughs> but it's sad to me that people prefer an eye for an eye. 
and a tooth for a tooth over loving your enemy. Blessing those that despitefully use you, not rendering evil for evil, turning the other cheek. It's like, no, I'll take Moses. It blows me away how many times on social media I have quoted Jesus without putting quotation marks and putting Jesus next to it. And if people come on and comment and rebuke me with Isaiah and Moses and everybody else, and I answer, I say, well, Jesus kind of trumps the rest. That was a really good place for an amen. Jesus, Jesus trumps Moses, Isaiah, Abraham, all of them. Okay, he trumps them all. Jesus is talking here to his disciples. And one thing, I, I don't like to assume anywhere I go. I know you all have had great teaching in this house, but I, I just, I never like to assume. Just know that not everything in the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. Not everything in the New Testament is the New Covenant. Matter of fact, the New Covenant wasn't enacted until the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And so Jesus the words in red was specifically and normally speaking to Jews that were under the law. It's very important to understand that because when Jesus says things like this, I remember about 20 years ago, I preached for a pastor and on Saturday we went to dinner and he told me, he said, man, we've been having a move of God in our church, but God showed me that if the rapture took place, less than 10% of my church would make it. I was like, wow less than 10%. So where do you get that from? He said, Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and not many walk therein. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. I said, well, that's true. But Jesus was talking to Jews, not yous. And under the law, narrow was the way. Narrow was the way. Matter of fact, it was absolutely nearly impossible under the law. But now that he went to the cross, he split the way wide open. Matter of fact, he said, I am the way. The door has opened wide now. Whosoever will may come. It's not near as difficult as you think. But if I don't understand the audience in which he's speaking to, and so Jesus is normally answering questions from Pharisees who were following around and Jews, but he gets to this passage in John 13, and he pulls his disciples aside. He said, I came to the lost sheep of Israel, and he comes and he pulls it. Now, everything Jesus said is important because he was carrying the new covenant in his blood, and he was enacting it. He was showing us what it looked like and the beauty of it, but he was predominantly speaking to Jews under the law. And he says something crazy. I mean, this jumped off the page at me a few years ago because I read over it, I know, for years. And he's telling his disciples who are all Jews, he said, as I said to the Jews, but now I say to yous. Now, Jesus wasn't anti-Semitic, even though Jesus, let 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 me share something with you that'll shock you. Jesus was raised in Jewish culture, but Jesus wasn't a Jew because you got your Jewishness from your father. <laughs> Timothy wasn't a Jew because his mother raised him a Jew. He was raised in Jewish culture, but his father was a Greek. That's why the law was never for Jesus in the first place. So Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, not keep it. Jesus broke the law on a regular basis. It's ridiculous to think Jesus came to keep the law perfectly. He was constantly breaking the law of Moses, but he never broke the law of God. Because the law of God was always the law of love. He had no problem messing with Moses. He touched what he wasn't supposed to touch, healed who he was supposed to heal, hung out with people he wasn't supposed to be around. He was always doing unclean stuff. I mean, they were, they were ticked off constantly at him because he was always messing with Moses because as a good Jew, you should be doing this. And Paul said to Timothy, the law is good if it's used lawfully, but the law is not for the righteous. So the law was never for Jesus because he's not unrighteous. So the law is for the wicked. So it was never for him, but love is the fulfillment of the law. And so Jesus shows up and he's like, let me show you the law of God. And the law of God was always the law of 
love. So he said, as I said to the Jews, he wasn't being anti-Semitic, but whenever you see this phrase, it's talking about the religious system. In Acts, it says that Paul went to certain cities and it said certain Jews came from Jerusalem and stirred the people up against them, stirred them up. They stoned Paul, threw him off of a cliff, left him for dead, but then it said believers gathered around him and raised him from the dead. You always know if, if you're being stoned, it's normally religion. Anybody been stoned lately? Amen. I know that means more than one thing nowadays, but... <laughs> You can you you can always you can always tell you can always tell when people are throwing stones or true believers raise you up they don't throw stones at you you can always tell the difference but he says as I said to the Jews but now I say to you so he would pull his disciples aside and say now let me give you a true new covenant concept and he says a new commandment it's the only time this word commandment is even used. Jesus gave one thing. Everybody say one thing. One thing. thing. He's like, listen, I'm going to simplify this. All right. We started with, we started with the big 10 and then we added like 603. And by the time Jesus showed up, actually the, the Jews and the scribes and the Pharisees had added 245 laws plus 365 prohibitions. So by the time Jesus showed up, there was over 1100 rules to keep. No wonder Jesus shows up and he says, anybody tired, weary, anybody burned out on religion? And they were all, yes, yes, and yes, man, we are exhausted. You're trying to kill us. Hmm. He brings everything down. He said, I'm going to simplify this. Love one another. As I have loved you. Love one another. He even repeats it. He's like, uh, you're probably not going to listen the first time, so I've got to tell you again. And he says, I've got a new commandment for you. Now, this is what confuses us. The next chapter He goes on to say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The problem is S is not in the Greek. I don't know why most of our translators put S on that, but if you look up that word in the Greek language, it's precept or commandment. If you love me, you keep my commandment. Not if you love me, you keep my commandments, because Jesus didn't come to try to cause us to keep all 613. My first sermon was 1 John chapter 2. I was 20 years old. I come home from Bible school. My dad said, you're preaching in three weeks. My first sermon was 1 John chapter chapter 2. And it was, if you say you know me and you don't obey my commands, you're a liar. And my sermon was, you lie, you fry. And I was 20 years old. By the time I got done, folks have been saved 40 years. We're terrified, thinking they were going to hell in a handbasket. I'm like, if you say you love God, you don't show up to every service. You're a liar. If If you don't tithe, you're a liar. If you don't... Lord, have mercy. And by the time I got done, folks were like, my God, I'm not even sure I know Jesus anymore. You lie, you fry. Oh, I've come a long way, baby. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience. (laughs) But I interpreted that, keeping all his commands, as all the commands in the Bible. And again, he actually said, if you say you love me and you don't keep my command. He only had one command. I mean, let's, 
Let's be honest, the one thing the early church was known for above everything else was the one command. The one thing. Love one another. So I've loved you. They, 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 they didn't have, uh, they didn't have uh, an 80-book Bible to, to have a discussion about. I mean, they had, they had a bunch of the Old Testament ones and everything, and there's a few letters going around because the original canon was 80 books, by the way. That's in my book. It wasn't 66. And the original 1611 King James Version, by the way, was 80 books, not 66 books. And it wasn't 66 books till like 1882, and it was a bunch of Baptists at Moody Bible College. Anyway, um, it's all there. Just you have to you have to check the book. Uh, I, I I was always taught that was a Catholic thing and a Protestant thing. It's not true. All the early reformers preached out of the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was eighty books. Martin Luther, John Calvin, they all preached out of the Geneva Bible. That doesn't mean you got to go and add the fourteen in. But let's not try to have a discussion. People want to argue with me all the time. The Bible is inerrant and it's infallible. I'm like, well, if you got a sixty-six book Bible and you already threw fourteen books out, you don't believe that. Because the only thing the Bible says about itself is that it's God-breathed, inspired. That's the only thing the Bible says about itself. It's absolutely inspired. But just because God breathed on something doesn't even mean he agreed with it. Listen, do, 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 you realize, do you realize there's a bunch of stuff in the Bible that, that, that God shows up? I mean, all you got to do is read Job 42. Job 42, God shows up. He says, I'm irritated with Eliphaz the Tamanite because everything he said about me is not true. Well, that's pretty much Job 5 all the way to Job 42 is Eliphaz the Tamanite. You know how many sermons I heard growing up from Job 5 to Job 42? People put a thus says the Lord behind it, but in chapter 42, God shows up and said, I didn't say none of that. But, but, God, but God breathed on it because Paul said the reason the Old Testament, the reason the scriptures were written beforehand, they were there to give us hope and to give us confidence because of these people who didn't have a clear revelation of who God was in Christ, by faith could attain what they attained. How much more we... Because the scriptures were growing, the scriptures were increasing, the scriptures, I mean, listen, God, we know God breathed on Moses saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but it doesn't mean God said it because Jesus shows up in the Sermon on the Mount and rebukes it. So we know God didn't say it because Jesus wouldn't rebuke himself. But did God breathe on it? Yeah, because when Moses made that law, when he said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, up until that time in antiquity, if someone harmed you, you didn't just kill them. You went after their whole family and all their cousins and them. And so when he made it a law that if someone harms you, you can harm them back, but you can't mess with their family anymore, God says, I'm going to breathe on that because that's going to move mankind's consciousness further towards the kingdom. You see, in Deuteronomy 21, uh, when Moses made it a law to not rape virgins and kill them, but to tie them to the priesthood and to bring them into your home, and if you decide to marry them, marry them. If not, uh, just let them go. I mean, we look at that and say, that's immoral. That's horrible. Who, who would think? I mean, that's horrible. Un unless 5,000 years ago, you were a young virgin girl, Moses became your hero. I read a sociologist that said when Moses made that a law, it moved women's rights 1,000 years into the future. Because up until that time, you were just raped and killed. And Moses and I was giving you an opportunity to actually have a full life and live and be married and everything else. We look at it 5,000 years later. We say, that's horrible. How would God how'd have anything to do with that? It doesn't mean God said it because God's not for sex slaves. We know that. Did God say it? Of course not. Moses did. But did God breathe on it? <sighs> Absolutely, he breathed on it. Why? Because it helped move mankind. Anyway, hallelujah. Whew, I got to stay focused. That's not my message today. 
Listen, you got to understand how important that is. That, 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 that's, why, that's why you've got in Samuel, it says that God told David the number of Israel, but when you get over here to, to, to you get into uh, Chronicles, 400 years later, the scribes are writing the same story down, and they said Satan told David the number of Israel. This is where we lose a lot of our young people in our universities because a professor gets up and tries to destroy the Bible and tell them that it's full of all these inconsistencies. And the truth is, it's actually not. Uh, you know, so what was it? Did God tell them or did Satan tell them? Both. Why? Because up until Second Chronicles, there was no devil in Judaism. They had no concept of a devil. They didn't, they didn't have a Hasatan. They didn't have a Satan. They believe if it was good, it came from God. If it was bad, it came from God. That's why Job would say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. We know the Lord wasn't taken away. It was Satan taken away. But we know the backstory. But Job didn't know that because they believed, if, if, like if an earthquake happened and 5,000 people died, God did it. Because the gods do everything, good, bad, and ugly. And so what happened over that 40-year period where scribes would look at that story and say, God didn't tell them to do that. Hasatan, the saint told them to do that. What happened is over that 400-year period, their theology changed. And they began to believe that if it was good, it came from God. And if it was death and destruction, kind of like Jesus saying, thieves steal, kill, and destroy. Daddy and I only come for one thing. And it's life and life to the full. And so 400 years later, their theology changed. And they look back at the story and say, God didn't tell them to do that. That was Satan that told them to do that. Because a bunch of people died when he did it. It's actually not inconsistent at all. It's just they were growing. I don't know why we don't let people in the Bible grow. How many of you have changed your mind in the last five years? I mean, for crying out loud, I mean, we just freak out on this stuff. We're going to realize the Bible had this beautiful arc. It was, mankind was growing. And this is the beautiful thing, that now in 2022, the kingdom of God has increased to such a degree that a complete pagan would think, a God-hater would think it's immoral to tithe virgins. That's how far God has brought mankind. I don't know about you, but that's really awesome. Not only that, but in the last 25 years. All right, my, my boys, I'm, I was born and raised in Michigan. All right, my, 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 my basketball coach, UM, Juwan Howard, Fab Five. He's my boy. Southside Chicago. So I preach on the south side all the time. South side of Chicago. He gets a little irritated back here in February at a Wisconsin coach, cuffs him upside the head, and people were saying, this is horrible. They're calling for his resignation because there's no room for any type of violence in sports. Have you ever been to a sporting event? You ever been to a hockey game? It's just a big brawl on ice. But, but now watch it. We can look at it negative or actually see the beauty of it. See, 25 years ago, Bobby Knight, I mean, was smacking his players upside the head on the sideline, headbutting people and throwing chairs at people. No one, ever, no one ever called for his resignation. So what's happened over the last 25 years? The gospel of peace has increased to such a degree that people think any form of violence is wrong. That means the kingdom is expanding. They might not be using the name Jesus, but mankind is realizing. See, we can either look at it negatively or we can look at it correctly. I got to get focused. Help me, Jesus. And you only come to a place once a year. It's what happens. All the pulling stuff out of me. Now watch. If you were to go... To Walmart and you were to interview people and you were to say tell us your opinion about God the church and Christians 
Now, you might run into someone that's been to the house. And they might say, some of the most loving, kind people I ever met. But let's be honest, most of the time, the people you're going to run into, they're going to say bigots, judgmental, mean, yeah, crazy. Listen, we, man, we got a lot of work to do. The one thing the church was known for in the early church is the one thing hardly anybody ever brings up that the church is known for. Imagine what would happen if the body of Christ just made up their mind to get the one thing Jesus said was a commandment down pat. See, part of the problem is it's because Jesus was speaking to Jews when they asked him one day, what's the greatest commandment under the law? And he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so we're like, well, yeah, but see, that's what Jesus said there. But the problem with that is it's, it's, it's highly, it's highly feeling-based. Nothing wrong with loving your neighbor as you love yourself uh, as long as you like yourself that day. You know, like if you really like yourself on a day and you run into somebody and, and they're going to they're gonna love you the way they love themselves, but if they have one of those days, and I know you all are more spiritual than me, you don't have them because I had one yesterday. <laughs> Sitting at an airport for six hours waiting, finally getting into Baltimore at 1.30 in the morning, uh, barely able to close my eyes and, and, and then getting up early this morning to get here. I need a nap this afternoon in Jesus' name. But sometimes when you run into someone on one of those days, they're going to love you the way they feel about themselves because there's some days you don't like yourself, let alone like your spouse, your kids. You're not even sure you like Jesus some days. Come on, tell the truth and shame the devil. Hmm? Yeah, you're not your friend. Ain't never going to forget that one right there. But you see, when, when, when the mindset, when our when our mindset is, is still loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, which is not a bad thing, but Jesus takes it to another level when he says, I want you to love one another the way I loved. Because I'm always patient. I'm always kind. I'm not easily angered. I keep no record of wrong. Man, that's next level stuff there. That, 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 that doesn't mean that if someone harmed you and, and, and they were abusive to you that you just let them back into your life. But, but love demands that you love your enemies, that you turn the other cheek, that you don't render evil for evil, that you bless those that despitefully use you. I'm telling you, that's where the rubber meets the road, and that's why Moses is easier than Jesus. And it's easy to just, let's be honest, when someone smacks us. Probably one of my favorite things on YouTube because my granddaughters, they like to come sit in my lap and watch it. I love the guy that is in the, inside the snowman. Anybody ever see that one? And all of a sudden, you know, people are walking up to this snowman, and he moves, and they just freak out, fall on the ground. Or, or the bushman, the guy that's all dressed up, and he jumps out at people. I mean, we just we laugh and laugh. We'll laugh for like an hour watching those. But you'll notice every once in a while, there's like certain people, he jumps out. <laughs> I mean, he's got punched a few times there, too. People just, you know, it's, it's just a response. You just Someone jumps out at you, it's like, pop. Loving humans. Yeah. See, with Moses, all you had to do was you could go hang up on a mountain and just hang out in some linen. <laughs> but just 
you and God and your Bible and you're good. You could just go hide away, but that doesn't change you. What changes you is when you, listen, I've said this for years. One of the purposes of the corporate gathering is not just for comfort, edification, and exhortation. We are anointed to irritate hell out of each other. Listen, I have to get around people that are different than me, that maybe I normally wouldn't get around, people that rub me the wrong way. The only way iron can sharpen iron is through heat, friction, and irritation. I've got to get around people that irritate me, and I still choose to love. It doesn't mean I don't have boundaries. It doesn't mean that I let everybody uh, in completely. But, but, but love is the one thing we are called to. I remember... I did a, a back there, the, the yellow USB series, there's nine hours uh, or nine different messages on, on agape, on love. And I remember when, when we shared it at a church that we'd started in the inner city in Saginaw, Michigan, about 11 years ago. Uh, one of the young men, he was a, uh, we had a church full of Latin kings. We had a bunch of gangbangers, big old Hispanic boys and big boys. And one of the young guys, he come up to me and he, he was on the street since he was 11 years old. And he called me Pops. He walked up, he said, Pops, I've been thinking he said, you know, I took that Bible that you gave me, and you're always talking about pre-cross and post-cross. And so post-cross, I tried to find where we're told how to love God. And he said, I can't find anything in there after the cross, how we're told what we have to do to love God outside of loving other humans. And I said to him, I said, wow, I never thought about it. I said, I'll get back to you. And so that next week, I just started gobbling up the epistles and gobbling up everything post-cross. And it dawned on me, the only time we're actually told actually how in the Old Testament you do this, 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 and this and approve your love for God. But John would say things like this in 1 John. If you say you love God who you cannot see and you hate your brother who you can see, then the love of God is not in you. In other words, where the rubber meets the road is not how deep you and Jesus are. Where the rubber meets the road is how deep you and your brother are. Am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the Holy Spirit whispered this to me, and then I'm going to try to start landing this plane. The Holy Spirit whispered this to me. He said, how you know you're really maturing in my love is when you can view every human as Jesus. Not as God is Jesus. Lord then took me to Matthew 25. It's normally an eschatological chapter, and Jesus starts talking about sheep and goats. And I, I've sat in whole Saturday seminars talking about sheep nations and goat nations, and we're not going to get into any of that because Jesus was speaking to Jews, not yous. And to a Jew, the moment they heard sheep and goat, they wouldn't have been thinking about nations and kinds of people. They would have went to two mindsets. They would have thought of a sin offering, and they would have thought of an atonement offering. They would have thought of sacrifices. In other words, Jesus is actually saying, and he starts talking about sheep, which would have been the atonement offering, which was the lamb that was offered. And then he starts talking about goats, which was Azazel, the scapegoat that, that, that was like sent out blindfolded to go walk off a cliff. And that was a sin offering. And Jesus was crucified outside the camp. And he was the lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. But he was also the scapegoat because he was crucified outside the camp. And he was the sin offering at the same time. What he's saying is this, is you have one of two mindsets. You either have a mindset of atonement, reconciliation towards other humans, or you have a mindset of a scapegoat. 
What is a scapegoat mindset? It's the one that Adam had in the garden, that woman you gave me. Rather than take responsibility, it's like, but it, it, she did this. They, they said that. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what he said about me. And a scapegoat mentality produces an us versus them mentality. And yet everything about the gospel and everything about the cross is Jesus came, Paul tells us, to remove the middle wall of partition so that now in Christ there's neither male nor female, bond nor free, Jew nor Greek. There is no more us versus them. But he removed every wall that made in us versus then and now produce one new man. But you see, we're, we're good at this. We're good at scapegoating. We're really good at it. Those white people, those black people, those Hispanic people, those Asian people, those Muslims, those LGBTQ, those, 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 those. And then in the last couple of years, those Republicans, those Democrats. Those, <laughs> those progressives, those, those conservatives, those libertarians, those all. I mean, just the us versus them, the attack is just mind-boggling like crazy. And I'm an equal opportunity offender. I have no problem speaking towards both sides. You can call him a democrat if you want to, but remember, Republican is a rehashing of being a publican. <laughs> all of it is a religious spirit because all of it produces separatism. Religion is a, you know, church is a religion, but also politics is a religion, sports is a religion. There's all kinds of things out there that it's this mindset of those people. And then the church is full of it. Those Catholics, those Lutherans, those Baptists, those Pentecostals, those law keepers, those greasy grace people, those, 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 those. And then we're constantly fighting amongst ourselves and we're pointing the finger. Do you realize that most of Jesus' parables was he was trying to convince the Jews that the people that they had excluded and called those people, he was now including in the covenant. The kingdom of God is like a man who threw a great party and he bid all that were invited to come. The Jews were invited. They were God's chosen people. One by one, they started to make excuse and he sent a servant out to the highways and byways to compel all them to come in. Parable after parable, Jesus is trying to let them know. Jesus was not crucified because of who he excluded. He was crucified because of who he included. Jesus was trying to let them know this is a new way. This is a brand new covenant. And now it's not just for the Jews, but it's for all of yous. Matter of fact, and I'm gonna need you to stick with me here for a moment and pastor can clean this up next week after I leave. <laughs> you going on vacation? <laughs> Listen, the story of Lazarus and the rich man has nothing to do with hell. Like nada, I actually deal with this in my in my in my series. Uh, nothing. Matter of fact, you don't build doctrine on parables. The purpose for a parable is to further explain some other things and give you a picture. And by the way, Jesus 
uses, Jesus is speaking in, in Luke, he's speaking to Pharisees, and so he decides to share a story, which by the way was a very well-known Egyptian and Greek fable. It would mean like me standing up here today and talking to you and all of a sudden saying, okay, let me give you a picture. Let's talk about Hansel and Gretel. Every one of you would be like, oh yeah, oh Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, well, we know what that's about. Or Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And so Jesus brings up a story and he said, there was a rich man and there was a poor man. They're like, ah, we know this one. They'd heard that story, but Jesus flipped the switch because in the story, when it's normally told, it's the rich man that has a name and the poor man doesn't. And the Jews would have been like, we're the rich man. He was clothed in purple. We're God's chosen people. We're the rich man. But what always bothered me about that whole parable is they tried to stone Jesus afterwards. Now, why did they try to stone him if he was talking about the afterlife? Because every one of the Jews that he was talking to believed in soul sleep. They believed that when you died under the old covenant, you went into Hades, into Sheol, and you slept with your fathers. That's why, by the way, Job says that hell or the grave is a place of rest and peace from your enemies. Really? <laughs> Not, that's not the hell I was talking about. Anyway, Ezekiel says that hell or Sheol, the grave, is a place of flowing rivers. Rivers of fire. <laughs> and in the Old Testament, it actually shows righteous being called up from the grave and unrighteous. The righteous and the unrighteous were in the same place because Jews believed that when you died, you went and slept with your fathers. And then when the Messiah would come, he would bust through the gate of Hades, the gate of Sheol. Jesus standing there at Caesarea Philippi when he says, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Sheol, Hades, will not prevail against it. He was standing literally at the gate of hell. They believed the Messiah would bust through that gate, go down into the grave and, and empty it out, which he did. They believe you'd be resurrected unless you were a Sadducee. And if you were a Sadducee, you just stayed dead because you were sad, you see. <laughs> it was just sad to be a Sadducee. There's <laughs> just true. So that was their view of the afterlife. So why would they try to stone Jesus? Because he wasn't talking about the afterlife. Listen close. When he brings up the story, he says, there was a rich man clothed in purple and he walked by this poor man named Lazarus. Now we read Lazarus. Lazarus is the English of the Greek rendering, but Jesus didn't speak in Greek. He spoke Aramaic. And when you go to the Aramaic and transliterate it in that passage, it's actually translated Eleazar. Now, the reason that's important is every Pharisee standing there, the moment Jesus called the poor man Eleazar, their ears would have perked up because Eleazar was the servant of Father Abraham. And Father Abraham, if you remember the story, he had no son, he had no heir to give his wealth and his riches to. He only had this servant, and he's crying out to God one day, and he said, you've given me all this wealth and all these riches, you promised me a son, and I have no one to give my inheritance to except my servant, Eleazar, who, by the way, is not a part of the covenant. And so it says they both die, and they're carried into Hades, into Sheol, into the grave, and Eleazar is in Abraham's bosom. Listen, do you want to know why the Jews got so mad? Is because the guy in purple wasn't in Abraham's bosom. 
Jesus was saying, those of you that think you're in actually aren't in, and those that you thought were out are actually now the end. And, and they got so angry at him. Matter of fact, matter of fact, I can even prove to you the preaching of hell don't work because he even said, why don't you send, send, Eli, send Eleazar back to preach to my five brothers? And, this, and the scripture tells us, he said, well, they got the law and the prophets they don't believe. In other words, the preaching of hell don't work because even if someone comes back from hell and tells you, because it's the goodness of God that leads you to change, not a horrifying story. Amen. Ooh, I'm preaching better than y'all are helping me today. You're, y'all are thinking, is that what you're doing? Listen, th- th- this is not about compartments of the grave. It's literally, they got so angry at him because he was telling them, I'm not into scapegoating. I am into redemption and reconciliation. I have a mindset of a sheep, not a goat. I'm not here to try to exclude people. I'm trying to I'm trying to expand the borders and show you how big this thing really is. I'm here to show you how good my father really is. And they got so mad. But now watch this. That's why in Matthew 25, the next thing Jesus said, he said, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. And they said, Jesus, what? I can almost hear Peter. When was you naked? He's like, I've been with you 24-7, 365. I ain't seen none of that. I mean, what, what is it you talking about? When did this happen? And he says, if you've done it to the least of these, then you've done it to me. In other words, anything you do to the people you consider as those people, those sinners, those whether it's a color, whether it's a lifestyle, whether, whether it's a religion, regardless of what it is, he said, he said listen, how, how, how you treat the marginalized, how you treat the people that you consider as one of them is actually what you think about me. It should be quiet. How you treat humans Jesus was saying is actually what you think about me. How you treat your enemies. I think it always interested me that Jesus never told us to love his enemies. You ever thought about that? Not one time that he said, love my enemies. He said, love your enemies. Because he has done. How do we know that? Because no greater love is this than a man laid down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for everybody. He only has friends. God was in Christ reconciling the whole world. The word reconcile means to be brought into favor. God, from God's point of view towards man, no enemies. But man towards God, enemy. That's why Colossians tells us that we were enemies of God in our our minds. Separated, alienated from God. We viewed God as an enemy. He doesn't view us as one. Maybe that's why he said, I'm going to cause you to spread a table in the presence of your enemies because you've actually ever sit down at a table and share a meal. You'd realize you got more in common than you realize. Stop fighting each other. That's why I don't think it's an accident at all that Jesus rises from the dead and the first thing he says to Peter is he says, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes. He said, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, how you show your love for me is actually how you treat them. I don't think it's an accident either that Saul on the Damascus road, Jesus appears 
and reveals himself to him. And all Jesus says is this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? In other words, he's saying, Saul, how you treat other humans is actually what you think about me. How you treat that person that you view as an enemy is what you think about me. That you bless those that despitefully use you. I've, and I've had to learn this lesson so many times. There's so many times God has had me, people go on the attack and call me whatever ism they decide they come up with that day. I've been lied about from one side of the country to the other. And every time it's a preacher, God always tells me to send him an offering. And I'd love to tell you that I still don't fight it. I still do. I'm like, I don't want to send him any money. I'd love to tell you, I just got all this figured out. I'm just here to tell you right now. Happened to me just a few months ago. I had a preacher come after me. I mean, come after me. Come after me hard. Coming after me about stuff you don't even know what he's talking about. I wouldn't even sit down and have a conversation. Lord said, send him $100. I'm like, no. <laughs> he don't like me. I don't like him. He's like, yeah, but would you send me $100? I said, sure. He said, send it to him. You're sending it to me. When you care for the poor, when you care for the widow, when you care for the orphan, when you care for the marginalized, he said, that's actually you taking care of me. You see, God said something powerful in Psalm 50 one day. He said, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. That passage bugged me for years. Because first of all, can God get hungry? And if he can, why won't he tell me? And the Holy Spirit whispered this to me over 20 years ago. He said, because most people don't know how to feed me. They're consumed with me feeding them. It never dawns on them that I get hungry. Jesus did his best work around tables. But if we have a real relationship with God, a real relationship is a two-way relationship. My wife and I will be driving down the road sometime, and we'll just start singing the same song at the same time. And has it ever dawned on us to wake up in the morning and say, what are you singing today? What's on your heart today? What are you hungry for today? What can I cook you? Because Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man would hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. How many of you know if pastor shows up at your house at dinner time, he's not bringing the vittles? You're the one feeding him. And Jesus said, I'm the one that's hungry. I'm knocking at your door. I want to come in and sup with you. What are you going to feed me? I've already fed you everything you need. What about the response back? You see, it's, it's, it's easy for us to just talk about how deep we are with Jesus this way. It's a whole other ballgame to talk about this way. That's why I personally don't see anything wrong with people confessing their sins and faults directly to God. 
I think it's a waste of time. I think it might make you feel good. But if he doesn't remember any of your sins and removing them as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again, and that's past, present, and future because all of them were in your past before you were ever born, and they were in the future before you were ever born. And, and, and if he's already forgiven you of them all and you tell God about it, he's like, huh? He's got amnesia when it comes to your sin. Maybe that's why James says confess your faults one to another because the person you're sinning against isn't God. Because God's not counting your sin against you. And if God's not counting your sin against you, maybe the one you're sinning against is the one you need to make stuff right with. Are y'all thinking, is that what you're doing? It's, maybe, maybe, maybe the confessional isn't all wrong. I'm just saying. Confess your faults one another that you might be healed. I think it's also interesting that James tells us he who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it to him, it is sin, not to God. To him, it is sin. Maybe this Christian life is so much more about how I treat you than it is how deep I am with Jesus. Don't. See, I've taught for years that the spirit of Antichrist is not just being anti-Jesus, it's also anti-the body. Because Jesus is the Christ, but we're never called the body of Jesus, we're called the body of Christ. Moses wasn't allowed in the promised land because he struck the rock. And Paul tells us the rock was Christ. You're supposed to speak to the rock, not strike it. The moment we start striking one another, there's some things we're not going to enter into. The water won't flow. There's some things we're not going to walk in in the kingdom. We're still going to go to heaven. We're still loved by God. That, that doesn't change anything. Let me, let me stop with this. When we had started the church in Michigan 11, almost 12 years ago now, I remember one thing I prayed. I said, God, we only did Sunday nights uh, just because I had a whole team I'd been pouring into in that area for about seven, eight years, and a lot of us uh, that were ministers also traveled and did different stuff. And so we only did Sunday night services. I only preached once or twice a month because uh, we had a full team uh, that took turns. But I, I remember telling the Lord, I said, Lord, I, we're definitely not going to be like any other church in the area, and, and I don't want to be. There's going to be a unique grace on us. And I said, but God, I, I want you to send me the people that no one else knows what to do with. I said, I, I, I want you to, I said, I, I want our place to be a place of such safety that the drunk and the drug addict and the prostitute over on the east side, and when they've had a miserable weekend, they wake up on a Sunday afternoon and they say, I just need to go someplace today where I'll be loved, where I'll be accepted, and I won't be judged, and I'll just be embraced. And just loved on. And I want them to think about us first. When a prostitute from the deja vu two miles down the road that she was followed home by a guy who tried to rape her. And she didn't want to do that for a living. It's the only thing she knows to do to raise her, her two kids. And, and she said, I just need to go someplace. And also the man living out in the township in a million-dollar house. And this actually happened also in our ministry along with all the rest of that. A man who was a builder. And he fell and hurt his back and got addicted to Oxycontin and was facing several years in jail because he kept breaking into his neighbor, the doctor's house, and writing himself prescriptions. 
Because an addict is an addict, whether you're in and out, up and out, down and out, doesn't matter. I remember about uh, two months into it, we started in a basement hall. It was a basement hall with orange shag carpet, mirrors all the way around a big bar in the corner. It was like totally unreligious. It was beautiful. <laughs> but it was cheap. I mean, it was like $380 a month. And I'm like, well, I can pay for that if nobody comes. I'll just pay it myself. I was like, I ain't worried about it. And I already had chairs and everything else. They gave us a room to keep our instruments and stuff. But uh, about two months in, a man was riding his bike past the church, and he heard music coming from the basement from this hall. And he came in, and his name was Jeff. Jeff Jeff was the town, the town drunk. I didn't know that back then. We got to know it after we got to know him. And uh, Jeff always had elbow pads and knee pads on because he was always falling off his bike and his license was taken permanently from too many drunk driving. And he heard the music, and he just came in. And afterwards, he wanted to come up. I was preaching that Sunday. He wanted to meet me. And Jeff just became, for us, he became like our norm from Cheers. You know, Jeff would walk in. Everybody would be like, Jeff. And he'd walk in. He'd say, hey. I mean, there were fifths bouncing around in his backpack. You know, I mean, you could just smell alcohol all over him like crazy. And he'd just walk in. He, for some reason, he'd always ask for me, Bishop, Mr. Bishop here. And, you know, I was only there a couple times a month. And he always wanted to see me. But he started coming like every single week. And then we were getting ready to move into our first storefront where we didn't have to set up and tear down all the time. And I got up on a Sunday and I said, now for the next two weeks, Monday through Saturday, I said about, I'm going to be there about 10 in the morning till 10 at night. I said, we got drywalling to do. We got to build a platform. We got to build a sound booth, a bunch of stuff and everybody be there. So of course, you know, right away on Monday, uh, we had all kinds of the saints there because they get all excited the first day. <laughs> and then by the second day, nobody there. <laughs> it's just me. But anyway, Jeff, Jeff shows up. He's, he's parking his bike. And on Tuesday, he shows up again. It's just Jeff and I doing work. And he's a machine. I mean, he's, he's building stuff. He's drywalling. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. So it came lunchtime. And I said, hey, Jeff, let's go get something to eat. I'm, I'm buying. I took him to Burger King. And we sat and we started talking. And I said, you know, Jeff, I've never heard your story. Tell me your story. He said, well, when I was 24, he said I was married, had a daughter. He said, uh, I was, have my own business. I was a contractor. I said, okay, well, that makes sense. And he said, I, I, I fell two stories uh, off of a ladder, and I, I broke my back. And he said, they gave me Vicodin and then Oxycontin. And he said, that led. He said, there was a lot of addiction in my family. That opened the door then to all kinds of other stuff, alcohol and heroin. He said, I've been in and out of rehabs for years. And he said, I've just kind of given up hope. And uh, he said, can I share something with you? I said, sure, Jeff. He said, he said, you know, I don't just wear these elbow pads and knee pads because I fall off my bike. He said, the weekends are really difficult for me. He said, what most people don't know is he said, there's a lot of kids in the area. They kind of know kind of my paths of riding my bike. And he said, on the weekends, kids will come running out from behind uh, their houses and they'll, they'll knock me off my bike. He said, or people will drive by and open the door. And knocked me off my bike. He said, weekends are really rough. And he said, you have no idea how many Sundays. He said, I've woken up and said, I just need to go someplace today. Or I won't be judged. Just a place where I'll be loved. And he said, my first thought is to come visit y'all. I sat there, Burger King just started crying like a little baby. And he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, it's, it's all good. And I started telling him about what I prayed for. And I said, Jeff, you know, if you need help, we can help you. We'll do whatever we can. 
And about a month later, he just disappeared. We, To be honest, we don't even know what happened to him. But our job was to just simply be a safe place that he could feel radically loved. Nobody looking down the nose at him. No one viewing him as one of those people. Let's be honest. There's some people that we get around and we all carry some prejudice. It's easy to just look at someone as one of them rather than looking at him as Jesus because they carry the image of your father. They're his offspring just like you are. God loves them just as much as he loves you. He died for them as much as he died for you. This is how the world will know we are his. How we love one another, maybe that's why Paul said that we're to love all men, but especially those of the household of faith. Because the way of love is the higher way, and it's not the easier way. Fear is easier. Ruling by fear, one of the hardest things I had to do leading a church is I was preaching grace for 10, 15 years before I started leading a church, but having to lead with grace was a whole nother ball game. Because I was taught command and control. I was taught straighten everything up. But then I had to learn how to view every human as Jesus. And what it's done is it's caused me to stop trying to fight. If you want to fight me, I'll just tell you you win. I'm not going to fight you. Because my job is just to love you. That's it. I'm not responsible for you or anybody else. I'm only responsible for myself. I'm not even responsible for my wife and kids. I'm responsible to them. I'm not responsible for them. I can't make them do anything. I'm only responsible for me. I'm responsible to love. I wonder what would happen if the whole body of Christ just got the one thing down. And we talk about it, and we're like, oh, well, we, 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 know, we know the love thing, and I'm, I'm convinced we don't. Because the love thing is the deep thing. Paul said that we might know what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of his love with all the saints so that we might know the fullness of God. The fullness of God is knowing the fullness of his love. It's not all the other stuff we think is the deep stuff. Love is the deep stuff. Because it's also the hardest thing to do. It's easier to fight. I'm going to talk about it tonight. It's easier to take out the sword and cut off the ear. But do you want to be Peter or Jesus? I made up my mind to be Jesus. Love as he loved. Bow your heads, would you? Father, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for your absolute, amazing, ridiculous love. It is reckless. It's not just amazing, it's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. We couldn't describe it with any word in any language because it just doesn't make sense. But help us, Holy Spirit, to see others as you. That how I treat my brother and my sister is the point. How I view someone else is what the gospel is about. 
Teach me that this thing is not just vertical, but it's also horizontal. Teach me to forgive those who've harmed me. Teach me to bless those that despitefully have used me. Teach me to love my enemies and turn the other cheek when it's so hard because we want to do Moses and hit him back. Help us, Holy Spirit, and transform us. In Jesus' name. If you do something, we just put your hand on your heart, everybody, if you would. I want you to pray something with me. And just say this loud enough so that you can hear it, because faith comes by hearing. And just pray this. Father, in Jesus' name, I receive your love fresh today. And because I have been loved, I love. Teach me to view every human as valuable as worthy of your love. Help me, Holy Spirit. Let your love be shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit and help me to love the way you love. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to turn this to Pastor in just a moment. Um, but before we leave, I want to give you something very practical that we can leave the building before we leave the building. There's something we can literally do before we leave. That goes along with what I just talked about. I, our ministry for over 25 years, uh, we partnered with one of the largest nonprofits in the world called Compassion International. Anybody here ever hear of Compassion? Anybody here sponsor a child with Compassion? Awesome. Yeah, I know there's some people, yeah, we have in the past, and maybe the child got old enough and is not in it anymore. And uh, I, I, we'd partnered with them for years. I mean, when my, when my daughter and my son were very little, we sponsored a little boy and girl because I wanted my kids to know that there's kids in third world countries that don't have anything that they have. And I wanted them to write letters back and forth because I wanted them to be grateful that there's something more important on the planet than the next pair of Jordans. All right, I mean, I mean there's things much more important than that. And uh, about, about 10 years ago, a good friend of mine uh, turned his church over to a, a spiritual son in, in Detroit and became one of their VPs. And he asked me to be one of their speakers also and presenters. I didn't have to think about it. We'd been supporting him for years. But then I got to go on a fishing trip with a man who pretty much built it over the last 30 years. And I believed in what they did before after spending time with Papa Wes. Uh, I was wrecked because I had two days in the boat with him in Canada. And after the first two days, I said, I, I need to be in a different boat because I want to enjoy fishing. And all I did was cry for two days. Just telling me incredible story after story. But then going overseas and seeing what they actually do in third world countries, life-changing. When you see boots on the ground, this is a $900 million a year nonprofit that functions on less than 18% overhead. That means 82.5% of everything you send in monthly goes directly to the kids. And one of the reasons why is because of the man that for the last 30 years has built it. And, and they made him, the board made him take a salary. You can actually look it all up online. I think, I think it was like $330,000. And normally a $900 million a year corporation, the CEO is making about $40 million. And of the 330, he sponsors 65 children. He can tell you all of them by name. He pretty much gives it all back anyway. Why? Because when he was nine years old, 
he was a missionary's kid in the Ivory Coast of Africa, and all of his friends in the village were dying of measles. And he went to his dad. He said, Daddy, when am I going to die of this? And he said, well, son, you're not going to die of this. He said, why? He said, you got this spot on your arm. It's because you got medicine for this before we came over here. And he said, well, Daddy, is there more medicine? He said, yes. And he said, well, can we get it? He said, there's no money. And he said, at nine years old, he made up his mind that he wasn't going to allow a child in the world, if it was up to him, to die of something they didn't need to die of. Passionate about it. And so if you've ever been to a concert, sometimes they'll get up and they'll talk about this and they'll talk about sponsoring a kid and you're just not sure if it's legit. You know, because you hear about stuff, yeah, they're feeding kids, but, you know, the board and the CEO is making all kinds of money. I'm telling you, this is not the case. Well, then when I went to Ecuador and I went overseas and saw what they did, I believed in it before. I'm not going to lie to you, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm all in because I've seen what they've done and I've seen the lives that are changed and, and, and I've seen the difference that it makes and, and I'm all in. I mean, I believe in it because I love when I can go to churches and I go into a, a, a city and I can say, man, we preached the gospel and people's lives were touched and changed and they heard the good news. But we also left, we left the house of praise for all people. And there were 10, 15 kids that they helped get off poverty. That that's where the rubber meets the road in all this because, you see, uh, social justice is not just for liberals. Jesus caring for the poor was actually very much a kingdom message. And it was his heart. This is not a political issue at all. This is about, listen, some of you have businesses. Some of you have grandkids. You could sponsor a child in the name of your grandchild. Have them correspond back and forth. It'll change your life, I promise you. But we just have a short video. And out on my table, I not only have my book and other product out there, but I have a bunch of packets that literally on your way out, you can stop and see me. You can choose the child and support it. It's $38 a month. It clothes, feeds, educates, plus two doctor visits a year. See, in most of these countries, they have education systems, but the kids can't go to school because you have to have a uniform. And the parents, normally it's single moms or kids that have no parents living with their grandmother because the parents died and they have no money to buy uniforms. And so literally just you doing something as simple. Uh, I remember one of, the, one of the stories Wes told me. There, there was a, a teacher in, in Britain, and she was in her late 50s. She sponsored a little boy in Kenya, and they started corresponding. And he said to her, he said, you know, I'm ugly. I'm a nobody. I, I, there's nothing I can do. And she writes him back. She said, I don't know what you're talking about. I look at your picture every day. You're handsome, and, you know, you're amazing. What do you love to do? And he wrote her back. He said, well, I like to run. She writes him back. She says, well, you need to run as fast as you can. So a year later, he says, I'm faster than all my friends. A year later, he said, I'm faster in my class. A year later, he said, I'm fastest in my school. Seven years later, he ends up on the Kenyan Olympic team and he wins a gold medal. And they actually flew him over to England and they videoed him walking in. This woman is now retired and in her 70s. She's sitting in a rocking chair and he walks up and he falls on his face in front of her and he gives her the gold medal. I'm telling you, I was a wreck. She said, I can't take this. He said, you don't understand. If you wouldn't have helped clothe me and feed me and take care of me and encourage me through your letters, none of that would have happened. It's because of you I have this in the first place. Literally, someone halfway around the world, you can make a difference in helping them. So just watch this video if you guys would play it. And at the close, Pastor will close and, and, and see me out there. I'm telling you, it's some powerful stuff. I, I, I wholeheartedly say you can trust it with all my heart, please. 
it was lunchtime. We were sitting around a table and we were all holding hands. And my father was praying for the lunch that we were about to eat. But there was only one problem. <laughs> Our table was empty. My earliest recollections is finding myself at the age of five, roaming the streets, eating from dumpsters. We were not able to have food at all. We were forced to live with 17 of our other relatives in a very small shanty. No toilets. A lot of crime. No running water. Rape for children. If you want to be out of poverty, then you have to deal with drugs. Some of my friends were actually sold into prostitution. Kids dying for preventable causes. And as darkness engulfs the place, the devil takes over. One morning, I just woke up that, you know, my uncle is just touching me in some parts of my body that I just thought to myself that this can't be happening. One day, my father was murdered right next to my mother, and I knew that moment that my life had changed. I watched as my 10-month-old sister died in the laps of my mother out of starvation. My relatives would always tell me, Michelle, you are so ugly. You will become nothing but a thief and a drug addict when you grow up. And those were the words that I heard from people whom I expected to love and take care of me. Poverty had told me I am hopeless, I am nothing, and I believed that. But right in the middle of this desperation, it was then that compassion intervened. One Sunday morning, my Aunt Carol, she's the only Christian person that I know during that time, she woke me up and said that we have to go to this church and she registered me. What joy and dancing came to my home at the news that I'd finally got a sponsor. I received my first letter. We wrote back and forth. And he told me, you are my first friend outside my continent. She said words like, Richmond, I love you and that lightened me up. My sponsor told me, Michelle, you are beautiful. You are precious to us, and we love you. And the words touched the very depth of my heart and soul. 18 years later, here I am, a child rescued from hopelessness by a young person. My life was changed. My life was changed. My life was changed by a teenager who sponsored me. One teenager changed my life. She was 15 years old. Her name is Ashley. Her name was Heather. I called her mom. My name is Michelle. My name is Tony. My name is Jimmy. My name is Richmond. And one act saved my life. And one act saved my life. Saved my life. Will you act? The choice is yours. Sponsor a child through compassion today. Release a child from poverty. From poverty. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. feel the weight in the room. Um, I know that through this whole morning, 
Holy Spirit has been touching us in different ways, bringing different things to mind, using certain things that Jamie has said to stir something, to, to, um, to kind of bring, bring things to the surface. So this is what I, I, I just want to charge us today. Don't move beyond this place when you leave this building. Let Holy Spirit continue to touch those places, to wash over those places. Um, some of us may already at this point have a course of action that the Lord has highlighted. What you need to do, do quickly. Don't let it pass by. And I also would encourage us to come back tonight. Tonight is going to build off what's already been done this morning. And uh, there's just more that Holy Spirit is going to do. So um, I would definitely encourage you to be back tonight. And uh, don't, don't miss this opportunity. So, Father, we just take this moment and seal all that you are doing. Continue to, to breathe upon it uh, through today and, and moving even beyond today. But in particular, what you're doing today, uh, that we may be um, receptive and doers of your word, not just hearers. Amen. Um, so go have a great afternoon. I just want to share with you guys what I was saying this morning. I really believe that Jesus has a way for us to be able to untangle those people and the feelings that we have that make those people those people. He gives us an out. It's not just stuffing it down, saying, okay, that's what God says, that's what I'm going to do. No, it's an untangling that out of your heart. And, and uh, I just, I suggest to you that, that maybe if that's on your heart, that uh, you would go to him and ask him how you can do that. Thank you.